Hello, everybody. Did you guys know that it's estimated that half of the world's 7,000 languages are going to be extinct by the end of the century? Have you ever wondered how this happens? Or would you like to know how we can combat this? Then keep listening, because this episode is for you. to another episode of Much Language Such Talk. It's me again, Eva Maria, and I'm here today with the lovely Brittany. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Thank you. <laughs> Our guest today is Guilhem Belmar Viernes. <laughs> Guilhem is a PhD student at the University of California in Santa Barbara, but he's originally from Girona in Catalonia in Spain, which some of you might know as a beautiful holiday destination. Guillem did his bachelor's in translation. He has a master's in language science and Hispanic linguistics and a master's in multilingualism from the University of Groningen, where I studied too. So that's fantastic. For his PhD, he's working on minoritized languages from different perspectives, such as the varieties of mixed tech languages spoken in California. But his research interests are much broader. He's interested in language revitalization endangered languages, language documentation, Native American languages, as well as Romance and Germanic languages. Guilhem is fluent in Catalan, Spanish, English, and French, but hold on to your seats. He also knows Galician, Portuguese, Italian, Occitan, Basque, Mandarin, West Frisian, Dutch, and German. So yeah, fair enough to get a master's in multilingualism. <laughs> um, so we are very excited to talk to him about uh, minoritized languages. So welcome, Guilhem. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, that sounds kind of like a lot when you say it, but it's not really that much. <laughs> oh, don't say that. I think that's all depending on perspective. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. But yeah, thank you so much. A lot of those languages are very similar. But yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for having me here. <laughs> Typology doesn't matter. It's still quite impressive. So <laughs> <It is. laughs> we could definitely uh, agree that it is definitely worth mentioning. That's a lot of languages. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate that you took the time to join us. And we really have a lot of questions because this is such an interesting topic. So usually we start each episode with the same question. We usually ask our guests, how did you become interested in this? Because we just heard that you speak multiple languages, but where does that come from? Sure. I mean, that's, that's a really good question. Actually, I think part of it came from just my own background. So as a Catalan speaker, I think I've always been kind of immersed in these conversations of language and identity and what it means to be a minority and all these things. So probably one of the one of the first things probably that I ever realized was as a kid, my name, for example. We were talking before about my name. Oh, you pronounce the yes sound and and that was something that as a kid there were not a lot of Guillems when I was growing up because I was born in nineteen ninety one, which means about fifteen years um for Spain um stopped being a dictatorship. And so Catalan had been legalized or with a framework for maybe a, around um, seven, eight years. So before that, you couldn't name your kids in Catalan, right? So there were not a lot of Guillems in around when I was growing up. And a lot of people, like those who spoke Spanish at home, had trouble pronouncing my name. So I, there was a lot of people who did not pronounce my name correctly or people who changed my name to, to the Spanish version, Guillermo. Or remember one day, one elderly woman was like, oh, your, your parents gave you a, a surname for a name because there is a surname in Spanish, which is, which is Guillén. It's not the same one. but and And so... 
I remember from a very early, from very early on, being like, "Why do I have this mic on me all the time?" Right, and so I think that got me very interested in in this in, in minorization. And then at first, you you focus mostly on you, right, on your minorization and what that means for you. But then, um, as I was growing up, I realized that well, first I realized that there were other communities in the area surrounding that also were minoritized communities. And then I started like Occitan and Basque, and I started getting interested in those in those things. And then a brother in the world and be like, and then you realize that I am from a minoritized community, but like the, the Catalan language is still very much thriving and very much in a, right now, at least in a, in a position that is better than, than other minorities that I was encountering, right? And then from that, I moved on to also realizing that, you know, every community, even communities that are minoritized can also be minoritizers. And then I started putting race and gender in the equations. It's things that I haven't thought about before, right? So I, I don't know. I think minorization came from my own perspective, and then I it just it just exploded because at the end of the day, if you are interested in minorization, you will see it everywhere, and and it is everywhere. I think it's a, it's a it's a universal experience. It just gets reproduced in different ways in different contexts, and and different people experience it very differently. But it is it is everywhere if you look for it. And so that got me interested in this. Yes, right. I think that will be relatable for a lot of people that are interested in languages because of their own situation. And you just mentioned that Catalan is a quite healthy language, if you want to put it that way, right? There's lots of speakers. It's an active language community. But it also has a lot to do with, I, I guess, the reason for that is that it has to do with pride and the identity that comes with being Catalan, right? Yeah, it's um, it's quite, I don't know. I mean, lately I've been thinking a lot about it because there's a lot of things happening now in, in Catalonia around language and in Spain, not per, not particularly good things um, lately. But I think partially it is the, the identity. It's uh, There is some pride of being Catalan, but at the same time, that is also very marked in the context of a nation state like Spain, which also means that that also triggers some rejections as well. So, yeah, I mean, especially, especially because the, the Catalans are known to be like a little bit of a, of a pain in the ass for the Spanish state. So that's, <laughs> so yeah, I think the, the whole thing now is that I, I think Catalan is normally, is normally mentioned as a success story for revitalization. And I think to an extent it is because it was very successful in creating new speakers. But I think, What lacks is creating new users. New speakers doesn't translate in, into new users. And you see now that there's a lot of people who can speak Catalan. That doesn't mean that they will. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a, whole other, mm -hmm. a whole other story. Yeah, there's a big difference. That's yeah, still... that's a really interesting distinction to be making. Yeah, mm -hmm. just because you know how to speak a language or are able to doesn't mean you're going to. And then that raises many other questions or issues as well. Exactly. Yeah. So... Around this topic, there are, of course, different terminologies and different things, words that we can use. And something that we were talking about before the recording is this idea around endangered languages versus terms like minoritized languages or saving languages. So could you maybe explain a little bit about your thoughts around the different terms in this area? Yeah, sure. So I tend to use minoritized. Sometimes maybe when I'm speaking, I will lapse into minority because it's the common term, but I tend mm -hmm. to use minoritized, even though I, there there's some, some of my first publications that have minority because I didn't trust myself enough to fight editors, but now I do. Um, <laughs> and minoritized, I tend to use that because I want to emphasize that anything that you now categorize as a minority is a minority because of a process that 
others are minoritizing it. And right. it's not like, no, no community is a minority because there's something inherent to the community that makes them a minority, right? Good point. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's something that is done to the community. Exactly. It's something that is being done to these communities. And so I really want to emphasize that that's the case. It's not, even if it's a community that now has five speakers, I don't care. The reason why now it has five speakers and the reason why now it's not the normal communication for any group is because of a process that has been happening maybe for, for centuries now, right? So, so yeah, I really want to emphasize that. I know that the the normal term is minority. That's the most common term. And I'm, I guess I'm okay with that. We don't try to make the distinction because I've also seen some people that try to make a distinction between minority and minoritized. And I think that's an unreal distinction based on just size. And I don't think that, I don't think size is a criterion enough to make any distinction between languages because size is not really the, I mean, I was saying before, like Catalan can have a lot of speakers, but does it have as many users as speakers, right? Size is a little bit, even counting speakers is like a nebulous area. So I don't think size is, is the, the matter here. Size doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Size doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> and and then and then you uh, you also mentioned so endangered is one of the other things that mm -hmm. uh, the people mentioned. I don't know if I'm uh, the most appropriate person for the discussion of endangered, but if anyone is interested, I, I would recommend to watch or read anything that Haunanikai Trask has ever said or Wesley Leonard more recently. So Haunanikai Trask, um, she was a Hawaiian activist, and Wesley Leonard is from the Miami tribe in the United States, and they talk a lot about this. So if anyone okay. is interested, that's the place to go. But basically, it's that the discourse of endangerment is not really a productive discourse. First, also because the language per se is not endangered. What is endangered is the community. Right. That's another thing. And then also because the endangerment discourse, I think there is a bit of a, I don't know, I'm going to, it's pretty early in the morning. So if it, this is controversial, whatever, but <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I think there is a bit of a pornography of the of endangerment going around, especially in academia. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can work with the smallest language possible, you can get more grants. It's sadly it's the case. Um, I know yeah. I know it's used. I'm okay with you know like asking grants for the foundation of endangered languages or something like that. But I like to stay a bit away from uh, from the term because endangerment also goes with the discourse of language death, which is also right. not really. Again, not productive mm. because languages don't die, right? Languages cease to be spoken, but it can be brought back to life. And most Native American people that, that talk about this will use metaphors like sleeping or um, if instead of revitalize the language, they will talk about re-blossoming or things like this. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's Rather poetic. than bringing back. I mean, I was very really surprised because I realized that I saw the, the re-blossoming idea from different backgrounds. And the mystic speakers that I work with, they were like, oh, let's translate this part of this website that we had. And they were like trying to find a word for revitalization. And they came up with make blossom again out of the blue. Like I was like, how is everyone coming up with the same metaphor? That's actually maybe we should start using this metaphor instead of revitalization, right? So there's a lot of talk around that. And I guess the last one was saving. Um, and that for me is the most problematic one, I think for everyone actually. Especially first, because as a as an academic that works on revitalization or blossoming of languages that are not my language, I'm not the one saving anything. I am just like providing some tools and help because also it's not the academic. It's not for academia to decide whether the language has to be revitalized or not or kept or that that goes into this whole other discussion of like, 
a lot of people will will just tell you that oh you, we have to convince speaker to pass their language on and yes i agree with that on, in principle and that's that's a very nice sentence but have you thought that maybe passing this language on means that they will be discriminated against or their all their life like parents don't want their kids to be discriminated against all their life right so maybe if you want them to pass the language on you have to do something to stop that discrimination not just say pass the language on right and so I think like from academia, it's very easy to say these things and just sit down and relax. But so saving has this idea that, yeah, that a white man will arrive and will and will make your life better, which is not normally the case. But <laughs> exactly. So it, we're not saving anything. That's the case. Also, I mean, right. the language is not endangered even like I think we should just stay away from this um, from these terms and the, from the, this way of framing it. Yeah, the very good points. And I like that you mentioned, we're going to talk about it later as well. Like, what can you do actually to, I don't know what the question is going to be phrased as, but we're going to talk about it later. <laughs> and what you said about like, it's nice for parents to pass on their languages, but they won't do it if, you're, if they're discriminated against, right? And the children as well. That whole stigma surrounding bilingualism, that's something we need to work on 100%. So you mentioned in your answer, to that question, around mixed text languages and the different groups of people that you're working with during your PhD in researching that. For our listeners, maybe who aren't familiar or don't know, what are mixed text languages and how did you get your, or how did you get interested in studying them? Yeah, so the, the mystic languages, this is a branch of the Otomangian language family in Mesoamerica. And mystic languages are, are spoken in the present-day states of Mexico, of Oaxaca, Guerrero, and Puebla. Um, originally, that's where they, they're from, but there are now mystic speakers everywhere in Mexico and everywhere in the U.S., especially in agricultural areas. So they there's a lot of indigenous farm workers in the agricultural system of the U.S. So there's quite a lot of mystic languages, um, and there's a lot of variation in its town as normal. Um, there's some mutual intelligibility between some of them, but they're mostly treated as different um, as different languages, even though they all see themselves as the same ethnic group, and they will all tell you that they're mystic and they all speak mystic. I think the community refers to their to different mystic languages more as mystic varieties or variants than uh, the mystic languages. And so there's a huge community of mystic speakers in, so I'm in Santa Barbara, um, and there's there's a lot of mystic speakers south in Oxnard and north in Santa Maria. Santa Maria is in the same county of uh, like Santa Barbara. And I got involved in it because mystic, well, because mystic was the, the language or one of the mystic varieties was the language that we worked on during my film methods class my first year here at UCSB. Um, and so we had somebody from Santa Maria who came to the class and worked with us and we were was documenting and giving, making materials and then the pandemic struck and... We started working very closely together, and oh, um, cool. yeah, it, it, it happened very organically. Actually, I never decided. Oh, I'm gonna do mystic. I didn't, even, I didn't even know what mystic was until the first day of class. So, wow, look at you! That's great. So, going back to our discussion just before that around what terminology we might use, how would you classify a minoritized or I'll put stroke endangered? language and are there criteria or conditions that need to be met in order to be considered minoritized or endangered i mean for me a minoritized language is a language whose social use is somewhat contested by another language okay interesting well that's very succinct <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh... <laughs> i'm just thinking about that and i'm like right okay yeah, me too yeah it's like yes that makes sense so basically the 
in in any context, uh, if if a language is not the uh, the quote unquote unmarked code of communication of that context, it's probably because it's minoritized, or it's like a global language like English or Spanish that has nothing to do with the community and a couple of people speak it. Mm-hmm. Right. Very succinct. I love that. It's quite a powerful definition because you can think about that and transfer that over and apply that to many different contexts without having, you yeah. know, like a checklist that you need to tick in order to be considered X, Y, or Z. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seen, I've seen people talk about numbers of speakers. And again, I, I don't believe in numbers of speakers. I don't think you can count speakers as succinctly and successfully as people think they can count speakers. I mean, this is a podcast on multilingualism. You know that when you speak more than one language, you don't speak both languages in the same way. And then like, it's, it's much more complex than that. And also there's, there's other checklists that you can, that you can mention, but I think it, it just boils down to that anyway. Mm-hmm. So why bother checking so many other things? Agreed. Yeah. 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 So how do you do research in this area? I, I imagine there might be, you know, field work. You go into these communities and try and understand their use of the language or like what sort of methods do you use more approaches do you take to looking into this, this field? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 one of the things is that when you work on, when you work on this field, or this subfield, uh, you you kind of have to do everything, <laughs> and by that I mean like right. because you you're documenting at the same time mm-hmm. that you're actually doing other things. Um, so you have to be a quote unquote structural linguist, and so you have to do syntax, you have to do phonology, you have to do like all these more traditional things in ling- in linguistics. And you have to do all of them, which is exactly the point. You have to kind of be a little bit of everything. And at the same time, you are doing ethnography. Because if you're interested in the minorization part, you're basically a participant observer all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're constantly trying to understand what's happening, what, is, what are the dynamics, what is, what's being left unsaid, which is the, the big thing uh, in these things. And then you're also... You're also a designer for posters for kids that want to learn the language. You're also, you're, you're also, if you can, if you have the tools, I mean, it's not my case because I'm very bad at coding, but I had a, a classmate who, uh, who developed a, a small game, a small game app for uh, learning mystic uh, vocabulary. And so oh, cool. you try, you, you're, you're everything. You're basically everything you can put into it. For example, like we're, we're designing also social media posts and words of the day. And this is, yeah, you're, you're kind of doing everything. And while doing all these things, you would use more traditional methods for the documentation, probably, but you're constantly doing ethnography. That's the point. Um, and I think it goes it goes hand in hand with the idea that if you are doing this kind of work, there is no separation. I mean, I, I don't think there is ever a separation between those two things. But if you're doing this kind of work, especially, there's no separation between academia and activism, and you have to just be both at the same time. Which is sometimes a bit of a weird balance, institutionally at least, but... I don't think you should have the difference anyway, so I'm I'm okay with that. Interesting. Yeah. So taking the phrase maybe jack of all trades and master of none, but changing it to jack of all trades and master of all of them <laughs> is how you do research in this in this area. Uh yeah, I guess. Except for coding um, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'm with you yeah. on that. I mean, I guess you know, it's it's it is a very like it would be nice if we could collaborate more. The thing is that it is an area that unfortunately doesn't have a lot of funds available. And when you get funds, it's normally 
just for documentation and archiving archiving things about this language it tends to be also again like that pornography of size that i was talking about of the of the endangerment it has to be something very small for you to get funding and and i always wonder that, oh sorry that extends past linguistics as well right this yeah. tragedy yes. porn in yes. sociology and political sciences it's it's everywhere Yes, yes, exactly. And and I wonder, you know, like how effective yeah. that is. Like maybe we can stop that language to get that's mm. that's exactly the idea that, that we don't get to the point where we only have five people uh, older than ninety speaking the language. Maybe that's we shouldn't get to that point, but yeah. Um so there's there's not a, a lot of funding, which is sad. Um sometimes I sometimes I do think like, did I choose the <laughs> the right <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> Brittany and I uh, are in the same boat. Right there with you. <laughs> but we're not doing this for the money. So. <laughs> it's true. No, definitely not. Oh, no, we wouldn't be no. in academia if it was no. for the money. No. <laughs> no. Nope. So I don't know how to transition away from this now, but <laughs> from one tragedy to the next, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> So I grew up in northern Germany, and in my region, so it's not just mm -hmm. the state where I'm from, but northern Germany in general, there's a minoritized language uh, called Plattdeutsch, or Low German in English. Um, but unfortunately, experts estimate that it will cease to be spoken in the next 20 years, so within our lifetime, because it's, first of all, it's mainly a spoken language, it's not well standardized at all, and that's, of course, mm -hmm. a whole other debate of language standardization and everything, so we don't have time to get into that, but... It's mainly a spoken language, and it's mainly spoken by my grandparents' uh, generation. So they, it was basically, there were lots of bad attitudes towards it. It was a farmer's language. So my grandparents didn't really pass it on to my parents' generation. They can speak it, and there we are at the distinction again, but they don't use it. And then they, of course, didn't pass it on to me. Now, I'm lucky enough to still have all my grandparents and They're all active speakers of the language. So I hear it all the time when I'm home, at least, <laughs> um, or on the phone, you know, but and, and it to me, it sounds like home because that's how I grew up. But thinking about it, the language, you know, just ceasing to I don't mm -hmm. want to say exist because we talked about it. It still exists, but mm -hmm. it's probably not going to be actively used much in about 20, maybe 30 years. That's heartbreaking to me, of course, because like I said, it, it really is. It sounds like home to me. So. Is it ever too late for a language to blossom again? Because 20 years is is not a lot, but I guess for um, activism, that's quite a good time span, right? Like, is it ever too late, basically, is, is the question. I don't think it's ever too late as long as the people want to do something about it, right? Um, so mm. the, the, the way you describe with, uh, with Plattdeutsch um, or neither sexes, I guess, that's what they call them in the, in the Netherlands. Yeah. I think yeah, this is this is actually very common. I think it's the common linguistic memorization experience in Europe, um, which is successful building of a nation state such as Germany destroyed every, everything else. I've, I always wonder why we only talk about one German, but then the Romance languages are much more divided. And I guess it's politics. I mean, if 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 you ask. Like if Spain, France, and Italy would have their own their way, they would probably only talk about Spanish, French, and Italian, and and that's it. And we wouldn't be talking about others. I think in in that sense, Germany was quote unquote a successful 
nation state building um you know successful and understood as for whoever wanted that homogenization that that's not what we wanted but i think i again like i i don't think there's um there's a point of no return i think there's always there's always room uh, to return there's always in the case of languages like plattdeutsch in germany there's this whole thing of i mean it's mutually intelligible with high german to quite a degree um and i i have been I've done some of this research in um in Friesland and in Catalonia that you know if you are a speaker of Plattdeutsch you can speak Plattdeutsch to people that don't know Plattdeutsch because they will understand most of what you're saying and I think the way to one of the ways to maintain these languages in Europe right now is to normalize that we can have a conversation in which we're not speaking the same language like i can have a conversation in which you speak in german and i speak in plat deutsch and if we understand each other that's fine i don't need to change my language to accommodate you all the time so yeah i think that's one of the things that that can be done in situations in which there is intelligibility of course um that doesn't work if there isn't yeah but there's also there has to be a welcoming attitude though towards the language right so that's another yeah, topic that's... I mean, that's that's always <laughs> that's always the case right so i don't know i recently started thinking well recently i don't even know what recently means anymore yeah what is time <laughs> exactly <laughs> but you know i like you you see all these like the theories social linguistic theories mm -hmm. of accommodation right um mm -hmm. but accommodation at the end of the day is it's just minorization like who accommodates to who is always the one that doesn't have mm -hmm. the power is always the one that is a minority in the situation yeah and Maybe we have to stop accommodating. <laughs> Maybe that's what we have to start doing. Again, like, I'm not saying, you know, do away with all the rules of communication and never communicate your point across. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if my point is communicated anyway, why do I have to accommodate to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. So you just mentioned, um, like, politics and everything, which really leads very well to my next question. So what can be done? So you, you've mentioned already like word of the day and an app to learn vocabulary. The bigger debate, is it purely political or is there uh, something individuals can do to stop the language from ceasing to be spoken? So yesterday I was teaching language and power here at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And I had a guest lecture by Jeremia Salazar, who is the, the, the mystic speaker that I worked the most with. So he came and he gave this guest lecture, which was amazing. Hopefully we'll share it soon online. But in one of the students asked this question, and I'm going to share what he said first because I really liked it. Um, this is in the context of the U.S., which is slightly different, of course. But what people can do, the first thing that people can do is understand that being multilingual is normal. And the people that speak mystic are not choosing mystic over Spanish or English. They're actually adding mystic to Spanish and English. I think that's the first thing. I think it's very powerful and it's it's actually very fitting for this mm -hmm. podcast. So um Yeah, one hundred percent. I really yeah, wanna same. I really wanna <laughs> applaud because <laughs> that's exactly the message, yes. Exactly. Um and so that's I think number one actually that people people have to normalize that actually being as monolingual as we are now is historically so weird, like this is not the normal state. People have always been multilingual and it's totally fine. You you should not have the expectation of understanding every conversation you overhear in the street because, <laughs> no, 
no, they're not, like, they're not talking to you. So what is the, um, and it's, yeah. And that's, I think people always, always think that they have the right to, yeah. um, which they really, they should really reevaluate their a- approach to anyone who does not quite fit into their community or the way they, they define their community. Yeah, exactly. So that's one thing. Um, I would say that second thing, um, and that works for some communities for others don't, but second thing is if we're talking about language minorization, we are we're also talking about racism. So it goes with the same with the same idea that people have to understand that the way you look is not reason enough for any sort of discrimination or any actually any sort of pre assumption, basically. So you're not you don't. You cannot assume anything about me for the way I look, and um, and that's another thing that um, that has to happen because a lot of in, in a lot of cases, I mean, it, this 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 these two discriminations go hand in hand. It's not the case for Catalans in Spain. It's not the case for Black Dutch in Germany because there's no racism involved. It's another kind of minorization, um, but it goes hand in hand with uh, with a lot of these things. And then just you know, like if you are actually interested in helping the community, or you are a community member that actually uh, is interested in maintaining the language and and or make it blossom again get involved like ask people to speak the language what they're doing ask what they want to do if you are not part of the community but want to help ask there's always something to be done so just ask people inform yourself do your research and there's always again there's always something you can do always and it doesn't have to be super high stake it doesn't have to be I mean, if you want to donate money, go for it. But it doesn't have to be that. It can. I mean, we always <laughs> welcome more funds, but otherwise, yes, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be that. You can again, like maybe, maybe you are very good at drawing, and you can just make some drawings for for free for a kids' book. Amazing! That's great already. So anything, anything that you can do and contribute will be super welcome. And I think it is very rewarding to this kind of work. For your, for everything, for yourself as well, for self-realization. Like I'm, I'm trying to appeal to, to people with a little bit of more selfish discourse now, but I, I'm, there's there's a lot of things to be done. Um, and of course, it will depend on the on the context and it will depend on the community. So that's why I'm saying like talk to the people that you actually want to help. Don't start helping without talking to them because that's not that doesn't work. <laughs> Nope, yeah. because we at Bilingualism Matters, we usually contribute to the Refugee Festival Scotland, and there's a whole big thing about nothing about us without us. Yes. And that is such a key message. It's it's fine if you want to help and if you have the ability, if you have the ideas, if you have the creativity, if you have the funds, that's fantastic. But don't just assume people want your help. Or what that help should look like. Because it's quite likely that they would love for you to, you know, collaborate with them. But don't do it without them. That is such an important message. Yes, actually, that goes that goes perfectly with the with the whole framing of saving. That yes. is exactly yeah. what saving is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very very <laughs> nice, like full circle, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So um, you mentioned that you worked on different minoritized languages in different contexts, right? So you worked on Frisian in the Netherlands or in, in Friesland, Catalan, of course, because it's your native language. And uh, you're interested in, you know, the mixed tech languages and the Native American languages in North America. So is there a difference, you know, with your experience, is there a difference between the language communities, the attitudes and the approaches that kind of stands yes. out? Um, so in, in very 
like in a very generic way, minorization is very similar everywhere. Um, but there are idiosyncratic like contexts that uh, that we need to to think about. And first, the, the the most obvious one is that when we talk about America or other settler colonial states, we are talking about colonialism, which is not the case when you talk about Frisian or Catalan, right? So it's a completely different a completely different context. Those are languages that have suffered things that we have not suffered. Um, as minorities in Europe, and you know, minorities in Europe have suffered a lot. <laughs> it's another discussion, maybe, but the system of extraction of colonialism and the system of being now treated as a foreigner in your own land and all these things, this is something that is a completely different story. Um, and it's also different from the Mystic community that I work with, from other Native American communities that that I, that I have um, interacted with. And again, I'm not the the most knowledgeable person about Native American communities in the in the states. Um, because there's the whole the the whole tribal system is very complex, and I'm not um, I don't really know much about it. So I'm not going to say too much about that. But the the mystic community that I work with is not only a native community, an indigenous community. It's a com- indigenous community in the diaspora. So there's a bit more of of this minorization going on, and this I guess this rootlessness going on in the community because you know like they have been uprooted because of colonialism and then imperialism and nation state and all these things. And then now they're also in the diaspora. So the search for who I am is much more pronounced probably. And also in, in, the, um, in the American context or actually probably in uh, all settled colonial, colonial states, racism goes hand in hand with all these things. Um, and so it is a different context. And the the attitudes are also different. I think and a lot of minority minoritized communities in Europe um, have this idea of this is obvious in 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 Catalonia. The people have this idea that you know revitalizing Catalan means making Catalan the language of everyone and opening it to everyone, and everyone can learn Catalan. And I think this is true, and this has to be the case in a in a place like Catalonia because it's a place that it's a place where speaking Catalan has some job advantages in some areas it receives so many so many people so much migration that you need to make catalan equal access for everyone otherwise you're just discriminating everyone uh, for some for some jobs right and therefore i think european minorities have to have to take this approach of being much more open of like everyone can learn my language and don't have to be that zealous of the language Whereas in a lot of cases in North America, especially, but in, in America as a whole, um, there's a bit more zealousness of this, and I think it's I think it's very justified. <laughs> At the end of the day, we're talking about people that uh, a lot of these communities maybe don't haven't spoken the language for two or three generations, and of course, if they are gonna make it blossom again, they have to do it themselves. Any any process of restarting speaking a language will change the language right i mean you know that like if they if all of a sudden there's 90 95 percent of the speakers of this language are l2 speakers the language will change it's obvious it does that's always the case so that but that change has to happen in the community it cannot happen because white people decided to learn the language and now they're changing it right so i think that's that is a key difference. There are contexts in which it makes total sense that the languages don't open until they're ready to open. Um, whereas in, in the European context, I would totally advise against that because I don't think it's productive in the European context to be like closed off and not accept other speakers. Yeah, I have a follow-up question for that because you mentioned that 
like people moving to Catalonia, um, they should be able to have access to learn the language, mm -hmm. right? But do a lot of people do that? Like, is there a, is Catalan a big second language amongst people that move to Catalonia? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, yes, it is mostly. So the schooling system in Catalonia is that all public schools, all state fund, funding schools, um, run mostly through Catalan. Um, that doesn't mean um, that there's no Spanish. I, this is a whole discussion now um, because there's some <laughs> court resolutions and things, but um, I'm not going to go too much into that. But yes, um, and it, it does depend a lot on the area, of course, uh, that you that you migrate to uh, because in some areas you will actually need much more for your everyday life than in other areas. But at the end of the day, most people do end up learning it. So you actually... In Catalonia, I think some people, because uh, I know that outside outside of Catalonia, people think differently. But Catalan is the quote unquote native language, and we can do another another whole other episode on my thoughts on native language. But oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for, yeah, for lack of a better, better term, term, the language actually the the Catalan census doesn't use the term native; it uses the term of language of identification. So oh. th about thirty eight percent of the population. The rest is between Spanish and other languages. I think Spanish is around fifty percent, and then the rest is other languages. So you know, it's not. But that. But then, when you look at people who can speak it. Almost 80% can speak it, which basically means that there are more L2 speakers than L1 speakers at the end of the mm -hmm. day. Um, again, that doesn't mean that they use it, but... Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think some... I think it was... There was a study by Pujola and, and Puigdevall, I guess. This may be wrong, so don't quote me too much on that. But <laughs> there was a study from... I think... I know Pujola was one of the authors of that study. Um, and he he estimated that around... 45% of the people that, that speak Catalan fluently now and use it are L2 speakers. Um, wow. So that is a huge percentage. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, L2 speakers that, that, that started learning it at school, so, you know, it's not, they, they didn't yeah. start when they were 30, but still, people that didn't speak it at home. But that's exactly the approach you need in order for a language to thrive, right? So that's that's amazing. And that also, like, I have another follow-up question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I'm getting carried away because I really find this super interesting. Because you mentioned before that if you open a language up, change will happen. That's something where I talk a lot about with my um, flatmate and fellow uh, podcast member, Béranger, because she's French. And, you know, in France, they have the Académie Française and everything. So they're really trying to, if you want to call it, protect mm -hmm. the language from loan words and whatnot. But effectively, change is inevitable and it's not a bad thing, is it? Unless it's, I mean, forced upon the language and, you know, we talked about the Native American communities. Um, but just overall, change will happen eventually anyway, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, this is this is a, a, a very hot topic um, in, in, in Catalonia <laughs> right now as well. But um, yeah, change will happen anyway. Um, I do think that in, in minoritized contexts, one has to be a little bit more wary of change because what are the reasons for this change? Are mm. we changing, you know, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. are we exactly. changing the language to accommodate people that we shouldn't be accommodating? Exactly. Yeah. 
yeah, are we making the language more similar to the dominant language so that it's easy to learn? Because that's not that's not what we should be doing. Organic change is fine. That's what I meant. Exactly. Yeah. So I I think change yeah. is okay. And if I want to continue going back home and speaking Catalan, with the huge demographic change that is happening back home, this will only be true if the language changes. I mean, because new people are speaking it with different backgrounds and different ideas and different identities, and it will have to change, right? I mean, the whole, for example, like there's finally the whole debate on, of non-binary has arrived to the Catalan language, yes. finally. And of course, there's debate around it because it's a, it's a huge change and people tend to be, you know, uh, people don't tend to like change, but it will have to change the, at some point. I don't know how, I don't know. There's like several suggestions that people are using, but one or one or one or the other, one will actually eventually cut John and, and then that's okay. That's fine. And that, so that kind of change, I think is totally okay. It's actually something that we have to even encourage. What we cannot encourage, especially in minoritized contexts, is simplification for the sake of simplification, which is mm-hmm. which tends to happen. Yeah, very, very important distinction. And we're actually planning an episode just on language and gender and that whole discussion. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> because it, we need to have that conversation. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, you mentioned the Academy Francaise, and I think it was a couple of days ago that I was reading how Le, Le Petit, Petit Robert introduced the yell, and then they were all like, ah, no, this is not <laughs> yeah, they they introduce the EL. Yeah, yeah. Well. yeah. I mean, you can't you can't close up the language as much as you want it on paper. If it catches yeah. on in yeah. spoken language, there's yeah. no stopping it. But also, there's this thing of like, can can we all relearn and understand that written standard language is not spoken language? <laughs> These yes. are two different things. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> They are two different things. And that's what I mean. Like they can, the Académie Française can, can, you know, write it down all they want. This is not the official rule, but. Yeah. But also like, I totally, I, one of, one, one of the, one of the discussions around the, around uh, the different suffixes that people are now uh, suggesting for non-binary gender in, in Catalan was whether this had to be some sort of like rule of style from now on. I'm like, why why do we want to codify this already? Like let's 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 people try and and use different things and and it's okay. Again, like we don't have to standardize everything from the moment we have the first question. Um these are two very different things. And yeah. actually, you know, because you also work with language, we study language and that's normally spoken language. It's most linguists don't study written language unless written is the only record that there is of a language. But like, or if you do just do corpus analysis, then yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But but even 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 in those cases, like if you are going to base your um, your findings on exclusively on written language that is not transcription of spoken language, you have to say that because it's a completely different thing. People don't people don't speak like they write at all. <laughs> Exactly, at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a whole thing when you work on documentation as well, because you record speakers, then you transcribe these things with them. Right. And then maybe you want to turn those, maybe, I don't know, they were telling you a, a story mm-hmm. uh, from the from their from their community. And then you're like, oh, let's turn this into a book for kids. And then there's this whole thing of like, oh, but how do we turn this into a book? Because now we have to put punctuation here. Now we have to get rid of fillers. But do we want to get rid of the fillers? Because oh, right. at the end of the day, like, that's how you told it. So that there is value in how you told it. So there's this whole discussion of like, what is, to what extent you need to edit these things. And Wow, I never thought about that. I've never really considered 
yeah, especially the points you just mentioned about the fillers and the punctuation that is because that adds on to grammatical rules and everything if you want to standardize back to the standardizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are really interesting points to consider. Yeah. And what what we realize is that a lot of them, so with, with the speakers that I'm working with now, so they started editing things out and they started changing stuff um, from the from the transcripts at first. And of course, that's that's not something that you as a researcher have to have to do, right? That that's the speaker that has to decide whether they they change things or not. But then as we progressively were doing this and we were, so we have been studying also these fillers and be like, okay, what are they what are they doing and because, um, you know, I mean, I, this is not the topic of th this episode right now, but I also don't like the word fillers. I don't think they're fillers. They're all doing something. So so we were looking at what they're doing and and and, and by looking what, what they're doing, the speaker started really realizing that maybe they're necessary. Maybe we should put them. Mm. And then one day he was telling me, like, I think I'm editing this with Spanish in my head. So he was changing oh. Mystic to make it more like like written Spanish, right? Because the idea of written language that they have is either Spanish or English. And so, yeah, I think they, they were kind of trying to accommodate to the rules of written Spanish or written English, which is obviously not what we want. So, right. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, there we are again, full circle. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that the uh, the speaker that you were working with as well was reflecting on that. And real like came mm -hmm. to the realization that that maybe was the driving driving factor there. Oh. Yeah, I should say that the speaker that I'm that I'm working with did did his undergrad in Spanish studies in the U.S. So he probably was reflecting on his writing quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Well, for the sake of time, um, thank you so much for waking up so early to speak with us. But I won't. We won't keep you any longer. I'm sure Ava and I could both come up with hundreds of more questions, which may be a whole other episode. We'll see. But as a final <laughs> question for you. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you're really excited about, or do you have any interesting projects coming up that you'd like to highlight for us? Yes. So the, there's actually a couple of things. One project that, uh, so we finished the first, the first phase already, uh, and I'm just very excited to just share it. Like it's, it's almost done, but we have been working a lot on COVID-19 stuff. Hmm. So translating things, creating materials, um, uh, making these materials available to the to the farm workers and um, trying to you know um, spread this information in languages that, that they can understand and so from that we moved on to recently we completed three workshops in Santa Maria with mystic interpreters or people who are interested in uh, becoming interpreters and we had all this it was very nice we had different ten different varieties of mystic or mystic languages and people coming together and discussing the best ways to explain medical terminology oh. and, uh, and mystic and how we can help. And so we recorded some of these things. We are making a glossary to try and help interpreters that because it's very common here in the U.S. that you go, you go to the doctor or you even like you want your booster vaccine, right? And, and you need an interpreter because you only speak mystic and you say that you speak mystic. They will call and be like, I need a mystic interpreter, but maybe it's somebody who speaks a variety that is not that intelligible to yours. So then because people are not aware of the of the varieties, right? And so a lot of people find themselves to in a in a situation where they have to interpret very serious stuff because we're talking about health. We and in, in a situation that would be a little bit like a Swedish interpreter interpreting for for a German and be like, Well, good luck with that. And you know, like <laughs> communication can happen, but it's a bit difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Especially so, in these high stakes moments. Exactly, like you, exactly. So you really don't want to guess. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
So yeah, and we 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 kind of came uh, came together and discussed this, and it was a really I don't know it was such a nice experience to see that happen, to see all the all these people discussing these things and to to find common grounds as well. They were they were all like, oh, actually we all share these words, so we can actually use this word instead of like coming up with a thousand other things. And and it was really nice. And another thing that was very nice is to see in real life how in Santa Maria, I think that the speakers are kind of starting to develop a mystic of Santa Maria. Because people are starting to get together and speak and they're starting to, okay, so I'm not going to use my word for sun because to you it sounds like, I don't know, trash. So I'm just going to change it and, and use something a bit more similar to your word. So you, they're, they're becoming aware of these things, which is, which is super interesting. And so that was, that's one thing. And, and another thing that I'm super excited is that finally um, I got the approval from the IRB board here in the university. I got a, a very small grant last year and we started to record speakers also back in the in the village where the speaker that I work with is from. And so we have somebody there with a recorder that we provided and we, we're starting to actually record um, more people, wow. um, older people, younger people and women as well because mystic is a tonal language and working with tones with only a male speaker is not easy. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone is working with tones, they try to find women as well. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's so exciting. So all of the exciting things. Yes. <laughs> Some money. Yeah, and congratulations. Money. Thank Greatest you. achievements. <laughs> Yay. I know how difficult that must have been. Yeah. Yeah. All our listeners now know how desperate we are. <laughs> for funding. <laughs> Please donate. Um, we have a website for the for this. It's So the variety of mystic that, that, I, that I work with is Yukunani mystic, or in the language they call San Sabina Yukunani. And it's... It's a variety of Mistepec Mistec, uh, which is one of the main uh, Mistec languages. And this variety in the in the village of Ikunani, there's around 81 people that speak the, the language in the village. It's a very small village, but it is the main language of the village. Um, so it's still, uh, the kids still st still speak it back, back home. Again, this goes back with the whole number thing. Mm -hmm. It's only 81. Oh, but actually everyone speaks it in the village. So maybe that's, that's okay that it's 81 right now. We have a we have a website. Uh, we have social media, so you know, reach out. And in the website, there's a link to a GoFundMe if anyone wants to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. We just we just use that. Uh, so the money for the GoFundMe is just to print the materials. Um, so every time we go to Oaxaca or even Santa Maria, we can actually you know the materials are all available online, but not everyone has access to online, right? So we are printing materials and making it. Um, and yeah, Risa actually. I think it was, yeah, one year ago, maybe not even a year ago, uh, we were very surprised because we found on Twitter that the school, uh, one of the schools in the Mistepec area, not even the school in Yukonani, had our posters. So we were like, oh, how did that get there? We didn't even know the posters got there. So we, we're, we're sending this these materials as much as we can printed, but we need the money to print. Because even yeah. sometimes when we get grants, like the grant that I got, the grant explicitly says that you cannot print material with a grant. Yeah. So, you know, like we need other kinds of funding with that. Yeah, grants for maybe listeners who, we could do a whole episode on this, although it would be boring and we'd Ooh, all be yes. very sad, but grants are very specific around 
around how and yeah. where you can spend the money. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. limitations yeah. on lots of limitations. Very, very exactly. specific things. So we'll be sure to link mm-hmm. the webpage that you mentioned and the GoFundMe and everything in the episode description. So thank you for the, our listeners who are interested. They can go check you out, maybe give you some money <laughs> for some printing, which would be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you know, if, if you cannot give money, just share the social media yeah. posts. That already helps. So wonderful. Thanks so much to Gilem for taking time to join us today. Thank you. Thanks so much to Guy Lim for taking time to join us today. We had a great time and learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners are just as fascinated by the topic as we are. Thanks to Guy Lim for highlighting the importance of minoritized languages and for sharing ideas on reblossoming of languages, cultures, and identities. You can find links to his website and the Mixtext website in the episode description should you wish to learn more or to donate. For everyone listening, let us know what you think by leaving reviews online. If you go to our website, you can also find a transcript and a glossary. And don't forget to follow us on social media, MLST underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Holgi Monta! Arra Laura! Toksha!